Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. This is A Word, a podcast from Slate. I'm your host, Jason Johnson. This week, a Minnesota jury declared what many of us have said from the start. Ex-cop. Derek Chauvin is a murderer. He said, God, we need justice. Yeah. We need it now. And he answered. Yeah. But can a conviction for killing George Floyd lead to justice for other killer cops? More coming up on A Word with me, Jason Johnson. Stay with us. Welcome to A Word, a podcast about race and politics and everything else. I'm your host, Jason Johnson. I can't breathe. That cry from George Floyd still has resonance for so many Black Americans, even if the conviction in the Derek Chauvin trial brought some relief. Here's Terrence Floyd talking about his brother and the case after the verdict. I will salute him at every every day of my life. I will salute him because he showed me how to be strong. He showed me how to be respectful. He told me how to speak my mind. I'm gonna miss him, but now I know he's in history. What a day to be a Floyd, man. For many Americans, the conviction of Derek Chauvin marked a milestone in the fight for police reform. But the history of police violence against black people is long. And while the arc of history may lean towards justice, the arc of policing in America still leans towards people being on our necks for nine and a half minutes and it requiring a year's worth of protest to even get a conviction. Which begs the question, how did we get here? And can the verdict after George Floyd's death be a true turning point for American policing and its relationship with Black America? Professor James D. Ward has spent his career studying these issues. He's the author of the book, Policing and Race in America, economic, political, and social dynamics. He's also the interim director of the Master of Public Policy Program and visiting professor at Cal Poly. And he joins us now. Welcome to A Word. Thank you. Good to be here. When you heard that Derek Chauvin was found guilty on all charges in the death of George Floyd, what was your immediate reaction? Like, were you relieved, surprised? Did you feel something else? Well, I felt that it was uh, a right decision I was relieved only from the standpoint that I felt that it is a beginning. But if you look at the history of policing and race in this country and at the history of police officers not being held accountable for their actions, it is not something that's going to bring about justice in the broader sense. It is something that gives a glimmer of hope. But I do not see it as justice from the standpoint of the wider injustice that has been done so far. A lot still needs to be done. And professor, I want to I want to dig into this a bit because I didn't feel any hope at all. I wasn't happy. I wasn't pleased because to me, this seemed like just a makeup call. How did that bring you hope? It just reminded me of the ridiculous threshold required for a black person to even get a nominal scintilla of justice in this country. 
What happened in Minnesota as far as the conviction of this one uh, police officer, it's not something that we can automatically say, well, it's going to happen now in every other state and every other jurisdiction. That's not the case. But that reason I said that it is a glimmer of hope from the standpoint that it's, it can be done if people do what's right. If law enforcement officials, if public officials, if society says this is wrong, but I think it's going to take a change in the American culture. It's going to take a change as far as how the American culture sees race. And law enforcement is simply an extension of the great American culture. So law enforcement does not operate in a vacuum until the American culture changes as far as implicit bias, as far as how it sees African-Americans and other people of color. Until that changes, you're not going to have any kind of transformational change within the police department or, or, or within law enforcement. So it's interesting you mentioned unconscious bias. So Monday, the presiding judge, Peter Cahill, instructed the jury to consider the role of unconscious bias in their deliberations. Here's this clip. Each of you have different backgrounds and will be viewing this case in light of your own insights, assumptions, and biases. Listening to different perspectives may help you to better identify the possible effects these hidden biases may have on decision-making. And four, resist, re resist jumping to conclusions based on personal likes or dislikes, generalizations, gut feelings, prejudices, sympathies, stereotypes, or unconscious biases. How rare is it for judges or prosecutors during the trial to tell the jury to think about unconscious bias? Is, is, that, is that common or is that something new and something we should expect down the road in this country? It's something that um, is, is very widely researched. It's something that's been very well shown that implicit bias exists. And so when I talked about, when I was talking about the a cultural change towards how uh, society uh, views race um, and how that has to extend to law enforcement as, I guess you could say, uh, an extension of society, that includes implicit bias or unconscious bias. Uh, we have to get to the point in this nation where it doesn't matter what color a person is, what background a person is. Law enforcement has to come to the point where it applies uh, its training equally across different neighborhoods, across different communities, regardless of socioeconomic status, regardless of uh, racial, ethnic makeup of that community. And the same type of public safety, the same type of serve and protect mentality that law enforcement uh, provides in middle class white neighborhoods it can provide in urban communities of color. All too often, we have to look at this in the view of how some white Americans look at this issue. And you said that you know white conservatives, even Trump voters, who thought that Chauvin was guilty. Are you concerned that like white Americans across the spectrum are going to say, see, the system works, the system works. He ended up being convicted and not be interested in long-term police reform? Yes, I think it's very similar to when Barack Obama was elected president in 2008. Uh, many um, people said, well, now we have a black president, so we don't have racism anymore. And I, and I think that um, I can see that in a very similar situation. We're going to take a short break. When we come back, more on the future of policing after the Chauvin verdict. This is A Word with Jason Johnson. Stay tuned. Our bodies come in different shapes and sizes, so doesn't it make sense that our weight loss plans should too? That's the beauty of Noom. They build a personal plan that factors in dietary restrictions, medical issues, and other personal needs so your plan works for you. 
Noom doesn't restrict or shame when you want to treat yourself. Their flexible program focuses on progress instead of perfection. You don't have to give up carbs or anything. And with their daily lessons, you can learn something new about your food choices every day. After just a few days of using the app, I learned how to recognize cues for overeating and how to choose the right foods to feel full. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M dot com. And check out Noom's first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for a hundred healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold. You're listening to A Word with Jason Johnson. Today we're talking about the future of policing with Professor James Ward. This is a, a big thing for me. Uh, and I, I came to this conclusion last summer uh, after seeing what was happening and researching it. I'm, I'm in favor of abolishing policing as we know it. I, I don't think it works. I don't think that we can train people out of what's going on. From your perspective, do you think that is possible? And from a theoretical standpoint, what would abolishing police and rebuilding a public safety system? Because it's not like people don't still need protection, but what would abolishing the police look like? And do you think that's even possible? I, I do believe that the language that's used as far as abolishing the police, defunding the police, are things that um, may not go over well with uh, certain uh, elements on the right wing. However, I do agree with you that because of the culture uh, that exists within American society, within the, because of the culture that exists within uh, law enforcement, that it does need to be cut down and then allowed to be built back up. So this is my theory on how you do it, right? You take a look at your average police department and you say, all right, what percentage of the time are you making traffic stops? What percentage of the time are you dealing with domestic disputes? What percentage of the time are you actually preventing violent crime? What percentage of the time are you hanging out at local high schools? And you look at what police are actually doing, and then you actually recreate forces that are specifically designed to handle those issues. Like, I don't need an armed cop showing up at every single traffic stop. I think the whole fact that police officers have guns, they have a badge, they're empowered by that, allows them to use excessive force. And it allows them to kill people and get away with it because of qualified immunity and other protections. There are certain instances where police officers should not be involved. And so uh, defunding the police, abolishing the police, or whatever term you want to use to make it more palatable to the American public, I think is the way to go. What in your own personal experience led you to focus on race and policing? Like something always drives us. What drove you to look at race and policing? Well, when I was a young professor, young assistant professor, I was stopped by a police officer around 11 o'clock at night. I had just finished teaching a class and had gone for a jog, had on running, running shorts and sweaty t-shirt. And I'm thinking, well, there's something wrong, must be wrong with my car. Maybe there is a, a tail light out or something. So I pulled over, waiting for the police officer to come and tell me what's wrong with my car. And I noticed I was staring down the barrel of a gun. Ordered from my car at gunpoint. It's treated like a common thug. And so uh, I did not get a ticket once he found out that I was didn't have a criminal record. That was my first encounter with policing and race. It all goes back to implicit bias. You know, Martin Luther King said a long time ago that a law, if you change the law, I cannot make a man love me, but it can keep him from lynching me. And I think that it gets to uh, changing the laws to the point where police officers know that they cannot engage in certain types of behavior and go unpunished. 
uh, it gets back to the laws because you cannot pass laws that will sudden, you know, make people say, well, we're not going to be racist anymore. We're not going to um, treat people badly because of the color of their skin. But you can pass laws that make them say, well, we're not going to treat people badly. If I'm a law enforcement, I'm not going to engage in this kind of force that could lead to uh, uh, death because I can be punished for it. I will be punished for it. And I think that the emphasis has to be on, I guess, changing the behavior from the standpoint of the penalties that these law enforcement officials know they will face if they continue to engage in this type of behavior. Uh, if you can continue to convict these law enforcement officials, these police officers, if, if it's aggravated, uncalled for, give them the death penalty, that's how you change the behavior. That's how you make a, that's how you make a law that keeps police officers from shooting and killing unarmed black suspects. You know, which is an interesting theory because, again, most activists would tell you that the death penalty is not a deterrent for violent crime. So why would the fear of the death penalty have any greater impact on a police officer than it would on the average person who's trying to carjack? Because with law enforcement, it's a profession. And I think that they know that they want to advance in the profession, if they want a future in this profession. When they go through training, they will become very familiar with the fact that certain police officers have gone to jail, have been sentenced to death for these types of, of, of actions. And I think that um, when you look at it from the standpoint of a law enforcement profession, then you begin to change the culture. That's how you change the culture within that profession. I think about police, military police officers, and the rate of death in interactions with military police officers, is, it's hard to get access to this information, but it is significantly lower than what we have amongst regular private citizens. And I've always thought that's because, you know, if you are a military officer and you get a call about a domestic dispute on base, that is the most high risk situation you could be in. Right. Because, you know, you're dealing with a trained soldier. At least, you know, they might be armed. And yet we don't hear about military police officers often having to use deadly force. And I think the core of that is because they see that other person as a fellow soldier and they're going to do whatever it is that they can to try to de-escalate the situation and bring that person in before taking their life. That's not how your average white cop sees your average black person. They don't see them as sharing a similar bond. So when you talk about how we need to make a cultural change, how the heck are we going to do that? Is that is that a Joe Biden speech? Is that electing a lot more black people to office? How are we going to make that cultural change? Well, you're talking about the culture that exists within the military. And that same culture that exists within the military does not exist in, in the civilian law enforcement. If civilian law enforcement were to see every suspect, black, white, Asian, regardless of race, as an equal, as this person could be my relative, this person could be my brother, this person could, could be my sister, they don't see that. They see that black person or that person of color uh, as a threat. If that way of operating in uh, the military police could be transferred to civilian police, uh, that would make a difference. We're going to take a short break. When we come back, we'll focus on how the Chauvin verdict could change the politics of police reform. This is A Word with Jason Johnson. Stay tuned. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C., on Tuesday, May the 14th, my colleague Mark Joseph Stern and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice. 
all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it, and we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets. You're listening to A Word with Jason Johnson. Today we're talking about the Chauvin conviction and the future of police reform with Professor James Ward. The George Floyd Policing Act is something that lots of politicians have talked about and discussed. But we're going to play a segment of, of Joe Biden and Vice President Harris talking about the George Floyd Policing Act. George Floyd was murdered almost a year ago. There's meaningful police reform legislation in his name. You just heard the vice president speak of it. She helped write it. Legislation to tackle systemic misconduct in police departments. To restore trust between law enforcement and the people they're entrusted to serve and protect. But it shouldn't take a whole year to get this done. This bill is part of George Floyd's legacy. The president and I will continue to urge the Senate to pass this legislation. Not as a panacea for every problem, but as a start. After just hearing that, uh, Professor Ward, do you think the George Floyd Policing Act would save you from getting pulled over by a racist cop or me from getting pulled over by a racist cop? Because I got to be honest, when I read the legislation, it all sounds like ways to potentially get justice after that harassment, but nothing is preventative. Uh, all these things are designed to change behavior in the long run, but immediately um, I think that we will not see sudden change uh, even with the legislation, but I think it would be good in the long run. Even though Chauvin was convicted, lots of activists will say that every step of this was a fight. Are we any closer to a time when the justice system will actually hold police accountable? And, and what are the actual numbers of, of, of police who ever get held accountable like this. Like, I'm under the impression that, that not only was Chauvin the result of, of a year's worth of international attention, but this probably only happens once in a blue moon. Well, very few uh, police officers are held accountable for their actions regarding um, force. And um, if, if we get to the point where they're held accountable more often, it's going to have to come from things like getting rid of qualified immunity, getting rid of, you know, these things such as statute of limitations in regards to how long um, a suspect has to bring suit against a, a officer or a law enforcement um, agency. Uh, so I think that the legislation uh, in the George Floyd Act uh, would help bring us to that point. But again, it's, it's in the long term. It's not going to be immediate. I think once you have uh, more and more police officers convicted, and if it's willful, intentional, uh, aggravated murder, they should get the death penalty. I think only then will you see a sea change. Now, I want to say that I do believe that the majority of law enforcement officials are very honorable people, but they're the bad apples that are the minority. And it's the bad apples that are giving the majority a bad reputation. 
Professor James Ward is the author of Policing and Race in America, Economic, Political, and Social Dynamics. Thank you so much, Professor Ward. You're welcome. And that's a word for this week. If you're enjoying a word, please subscribe, rate, and review. Did you know you could be listening to this show ad-free? All it takes is a Slate Plus membership. It's just $1 for the first month, and it also helps us keep making our podcast. Sign up now at slate.com slash a word plus. The show's email is a word at slate.com. This episode was produced by Ayana Angel and Jasmine Ellis. Asha Saluja is the managing producer of podcasts at Slate. Gabriel Roth is Slate's editorial director for audio. Alicia Montgomery is the executive producer of podcasts at Slate. June Thomas is senior managing producer of the Slate Podcast Network. Our theme music was produced by Don Will. I'm Jason Johnson. Tune in next week for a word. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.